0: Section thirty four of Jurisprudence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. Jurisprudence by John Salmond. Chapter twenty two The Law of Procedure Part Two. Section one seventy five The Production of Evidence the second part of the law of evidence consists of rules regulating its production it deals with the process of adducing evidence and not with the effect of it when adduced it comprises every rule relating to evidence except those which amount to legal determinations of probative force it is concerned for example with the manner in which witnesses are to be examined and cross-examined not with a weight to be attributed to their testimony in particular it includes several important rules of exclusion based on grounds independent of any estimate of the probative force of the evidence so excluded considerations of expense delay vexation and the public interest require much evidence to be excluded which is of undoubted evidential value a witness may be able to testify to much that is relevant and important in respect of the matters in issue and nevertheless may not be compelled or even permitted to give such testimony a public official for example cannot be compelled to give evidence as to affairs of state nor is a legal adviser permitted or compellable to disclose communications made to him by or on behalf of his client the most curious and interesting of all these rules of exclusion is the maxim nemo tenetur se ipsum accusare no man not even the accused himself can be compelled to answer any question the answer to which may tend to prove him guilty of a crime no one can be used as the unwilling instrument of his own conviction he may confess if he so pleases and his confession will be received against him but if tainted by any form of physical or moral compulsion it will be rejected the favour with which this rule has been received is probably due to the recoil of english law from the barbarities of the old continental system of torture and inquisitorial process even as contrasted with the modern continental procedure in which the examination of the accused seems to english eyes too prominent and too hostile the rule of english law is not without merits it confers upon a criminal trial an aspect of dignity humanity and impartiality which the contrasted inquisitorial process is too apt to lack nevertheless It seems impossible to resist bentham's conclusion that the rule is destitute of any rational foundation and that the compulsory examination of the accused is an essential feature of sound criminal procedure even its defenders admit that the english rule is extremely favourable to the guilty and in a proceeding the aim of which is to convict the guilty this would seem to be a sufficient condemnation the innocent have nothing to fear from compulsory examination and everything to gain the guilty have nothing to gain and everything to fear a criminal trial is not to be adequately conceived as a fight between the accused and his accuser and there is no place in it for maxims whose sole foundation is the supposed duty of generous dealing with adversaries subject always to the important qualifications that a good prima facie case must first be established by the prosecutor every man should be compelable to answer with his own lips the charges that are made against him a matter deserving notice in connection with this part of the law of evidence is the importance still attached to the ceremony of the oath one of the great difficulties involved in the process of proof is that of distinguishing between true testimony and false by what test is the lying witness to be detected and by what means is corrupt testimony to be prevented three methods commended themselves to the wisdom of our ancestors these were the judicial combat the ordeal and the oath the first two of these have long since been abandoned as ineffective but the third is still retained as a characteristic feature of judicial procedure though we may assume with some confidence that its rejection will come in due time and will in no way injure the cause of truth and justice trial by battle as soon as it acquired a theory at all became in reality a form of ordeal in common with the ordeal commonly so called it is a judicium dei it is an appeal to the god of battles to make manifest the right by giving the victory to him whose testimony is true successful might is the divinely appointed test of right so in the ordeal the party or witness whose testimony is impeached calls upon heaven to bear witness to his truth by saving him harmless from the fire the theory of the oath is generically the same an oath says hobbes is a form of speech added to a promise by which he that promiseth signifieth that unless he perform he renounceth the mercy of his god or calleth to him for vengeance on himself Such was the heathen form, let Jupiter kill me also, as I kill this beast. So is our form, I shall do thus and thus, so help me God. The definition is correct, save that it is restricted to promissory, instead of including also declaratory oaths. A man may swear not only that he will speak the truth, but that certain statements are the truth. The idea of the oath therefore is that his testimony is true who is prepared to imprecate divine vengeance on his own head in case of falsehood yet it needs but little experience of courts of justice to discover how ineffective is any such check on false witness and how little likely is the retention of it to increase respect either for religion or for the administration of justice The true preventative of false testimony is an efficient law for its punishment as a crime. Punishment, falling swiftly and certainly upon offending witnesses, would purge the courts of an evil, which the cumbrous inefficiency of the present law of perjury has done much to encourage, and which all the oaths in the world will do nothing to abate. Section 176. Criticism of the Law of Evidence. We have in a former chapter considered the advantages and disadvantages of that substitution of predetermined principles for judicial discretion which constitutes the essential feature of the administration of justice, according to law. In no portion of our legal system is this question of more immediate importance than in the law of evidence. Here, if anywhere, the demerits of law are at a maximum, and those of the opposing system at a minimum general rules for the predetermination of probative force are of necessity more or less false. It is impossible to say with truth and a priori what evidence is or is not sufficient for proof. It is not true that hearsay is absolutely destitute of evidential value. It is not true that a contract for the sale of land cannot be satisfactorily proved by oral testimony. It is not true that the contents of a document cannot be well proved by a copy of it. To elevate these maxims, and such as these, from their proper position as counsels for warning and guidance, to the level of rigid and peremptory rules, is to be inevitably led astray by them. Like all general principles, they are obtained by way of abstraction and elimination of elements which may be, in particular instances, of the first importance. To apply such abstract principles to concrete cases without making the needful allowance for the special circumstances of these cases, is as wise as to apply the laws of motion without allowing for the disturbing influence of friction no unprejudiced observer can be blind to the excessive credit and importance attached in judicial procedure to the minutiae of the law of evidence this is one of the last refuges of legal formalism nowhere is the contrast more striking between the law's confidence in itself and its distrust of the judicial intelligence The fault is to be remedied not by the abolition of all rules for the measurement of evidential value, but by their reduction from the position of rigid and peremptory to that of the flexible and conditional rules. Most of them have their source in good sense and practical experience, and they are profitable for the guidance of individual discretion, though mischievous as substitutes for it. The cases are few in which we can rightly place such rules upon the higher level in general courts of justice should be allowed full liberty to reject as irrelevant superfluous or vexatious whatever evidence they will and to accept at such valuation as they please whatever evidence seems good to them we must learn to think less highly of the wisdom of the law and less meanly of the understanding and honour of its administrators and we may anticipate with confidence that in this department at least Of judicial practice, the change will be in the interests of truth and justice. Summary Law Substantive relating to the subject matter of litigation. Procedural relating to the process of litigation. The occasional equivalence of substantive and procedural rules. Procedure its elements summons, pleading, proof, judgment, and execution the law of evidence evidence and proof defined kinds of evidence namely judicial and extrajudicial personal and real primary and secondary direct and circumstantial divisions of the law of evidence Roman numeral one rules determining probative force number one conclusive proof number two Conditional proof. Number three, insufficient evidence. Number four, exclusive evidence. Number five, no evidence. Roman numeral two, rules determining the production of evidence. Nemo tenetur se ipsum accusare. Oaths, criticism of the law of evidence. End of section 34.